Forgecast. My name is Sam Towns. I'm Alex Norton. And I am Marcus McCoy of Trollcunning Forge. That's right. We've got another awesome guest for you this week. But before we get to him, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. This week's Forgecast is lovingly spooning sugar into your ear coffees thanks to the knife-making supply company extraordinaire Nordic Edge. Everything you need to stock up on from specialty steels to sexy 84 engineering belt grinders can be found at their easy-to-use website, so give them a visit at nauticedge.com.au after the show to stock up. Oh, man, I could use a coffee at the moment. but uh... oh, right. <laughs> Early in the oh, what, yeah. what time is it for you guys right now? Uh, it's 10 a.m. for me. And All 1 right. p.m. for me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But uh, anyway, what what have you been up to, Alex? Well, uh, people who listened to last week's episode will know that I was determined to beat life and overcome <laughs> all of the piled-on adversity that had hit me all at once and finish that triplet of backlogs by the end of the week, and I did mm-hmm. it. Yeah, uh, they look it great. Took, it took everything I had. I fin- was finishing work at like 8 p.m. at night after starting at about 8, PM, uh, 8 a.m. in the morning. Um, but I was, uh, I, I got it done and yeah, I'm happy with how they came out. Um, so two of them got scooped up immediately by a collector, the same, uh, collector that got the scissor dagger actually, I think. Um, nice. and so that was the super third, cool. third one's still going through the dibs list, which is a slow mm-hmm. process. Cause I give each person 12 hours to get back to me. And some people decide to just leave me on scene for the entire 12 hours. <laughs> um, so I can only offer it to two people a day. <laughs> Well. And there's like 28 people on that dibs list, so it could be a while. Um, <sighs> but I've also been enjoying the fact that it's hay fever season, and uh, mm. so my entire face just is full of mucus, which is great fun and really mm. great for concentration. Mm. Um, and I started work on uh, a new dagger project. Hadn't done a dagger in a while, and uh, I felt like doing one, but I felt like doing one that was... Heck an extra. So it's feathered Damascus, uh, fullered. It's going to be hollow ground, um, full cast bronze fittings with Nordic gold accents on them, uh, fluted handle, twisted wire inlay, the works. Um, and it's just just for something fun, like a morale project, because mm. when you can just put all of your attention on a quill and dagger, it is it is an experience. It's it's really fun. They're like the the ultimate blank canvas of knife making, in my opinion, um, in terms Great. of decoration and making them fancy. And so yeah. I wanted to just go absolutely hell for leather on a project like that. And I had not worked with bronze before, and Sam had actually sent me a big old bar of bronze, which I've been <laughs> jokingly calling the Forbidden Snickers bar for a long time because it looks like a big Snickers. Um, mm-hmm. And now that I have brass black, I can properly accent the bronze um, mm. and... I, I got some dental burrs as well, carbide dental burrs, so I can do some really nice carving work and things on it. So I, I plan on just going all out and just having fun for a couple of weeks. And um, I got some new casting stuff. Well, I talked about last week, we were talking about David Orm, the jeweler, and how he'd inspired mm-hmm. me to get, get some of my jewelry tools back in, in my collection again. 
Um, and so part of that was some detailed casting tools and I'll be able to try those out. Um, so I've 3D printed, um, I, I catted up the parts for the, the guard um, and I've, uh, I'm going to use those 3D prints to try casting them in bronze, which should be fun. I'm doing that after we've finished recorded here, actually. Yes, cool. Yeah. Um, I also experimented on something that I've been talking about sort of quietly with Sam for ages, uh, and that is the technique of fire inlay, which is a technique which is very, very old, but really not documented. It's really hard no. to find information on it. So, With gold um, or like... What with any, you... any non-ferrous metal onto steel. Right. Yeah. Um, and the technique is, it's it, like on paper, it's very straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. Doing it in a way that it comes out really crisp and really nice Mm -hmm. there's an art to it and i'm trying to refine that art and i'm having a great time playing with it to be honest it's it's a really fun technique um so are you like engraving into the steel so it's it's sort of brazing it it, it on kind of it's it's essentially like having a relief in the steel preparing Mm -hmm. a relief and then um at heat uh melting metal in so that it hot brazes into place um, mm-hmm. and yeah, it sounds, it sounds simple in theory. And then you actually try it and a lot can go wrong. So because of the lack of documentation on it, um, I'm, I'm just having fun sort of trying to figure out a really cool way to do it, um, with basic equipment, nothing fancy. And I thought it might make a good topic for a YouTube video to actually put out there so that yeah. other people can do it. Anyway, I, um, I posted, I've done yesterday. some of that actually. I've done. Yeah. Some of that. I, I, th- yeah. I thought you might have. Yeah. It's, um, it's awesome. <laughs> and you probably have found the same thing. I mean, it's, it's hard to find references to the techniques involved in doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and- found an archeological, uh, an article on it, uh, with, uh, basically brazing steel with, with gold where, yeah. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't anything it was like a swedish archaeology you know archaeological like document and i had to have it translated and all this shit and it was it was like the only thing out there <laughs> well there's a wonderful youtube video that sam put me onto of somebody doing it but he does a, a very specific application of it and what i want to try and do is recreate wire inlay Mm-hmm. Um, but without doing wire inlay where you've actually got to sort of undercut and dovetail all of your grooves and all that sort of thing. I want to do a brazing style detailed inlay and I want to be able to do things as fine and detailed as like acanthus leaves and things like that. I want to be able to do that and that's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to push the extents of it to, to get that and then I thought maybe do a YouTube video about it. So yeah, yeah. Um, my first attempt at it, which I posted about, was ugly as hell, but I um, I learned so much in doing it, and I've tried it again since, and I got the detail just schmicked, just perfect, and I'm, I'm really happy. So I want to try and see how small of a detail can I get to mm-hmm. um, and still have it work. And I posted about this, and Jason Ellard was asking me about it, and um, I was telling him about the things that I'd learned and all that sort of thing. And then this morning, I, I checked my phone, and Seth Wood has actually gone and used, like, saw it, thought that's cool, and tried it and put it in <laughs> copper inlay in one of his hammers in his touch mark. And he did such a nice job of it; it worked really well for him. So um, it gives me hope for for my my future techniques. So it's a um, great project. Yeah, YouTube yeah. video in in the works there, I reckon, because it's a cool technique, and I think more people should should know about it. To be honest, yeah, yeah. So 
my song of the week is a cover of a song and the the song the original song is a very sort of sort of cute upbeat song but the cover is a really sort of dark twisted version of this song and because the original is so cutesy it kind of adds this real gravitas to it Uh, i'd never heard of the performer before Um, i don't even know if you're supposed to spell out their name or just say it Uh, it's uh, s-y-m-l simul maybe it's pronounced simul or maybe they prefer it to be actually spelled (laughs) out i don't know but they did a cover of the song mr sandman which I mean, everyone knows that song. That's a, it's a cute, it's adorable. That song, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be adorable. But when you sing it creepy, it is dark. It is really, really dark. And I, I highly recommend listening to the cover. Um, it's not, it'll be on the Forge Guys playlist. So give it a listen because it is cool hearing it real, sung dark. Real, uh, like Freddy Krueger kids singing yeah. the Counting Game. Kind well, of vibes. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like um, it's a it's sung from a man's perspective in this cover, not a woman's perspective, like in the original. Mm. And it sounds like somebody sitting by a window in their empty apartment, and they're just so alone and so desperate for company, and they're just melancholy, slowly singing this to themselves, um, mm. wishing that they had somebody with them. And it's it's really sort of like a depressive tone to it but at the same time it's done very kind of dark almost like what would Mm. they do to how far would they go to get somebody to be with them Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's kind of got that vibe a little bit of a stalkery vibe to it people go pretty far (laughs) yeah (laughs) unfortunately yeah Yeah. and to hear a song that's so well known as being upbeat and cutesy twisted that far is cool it's really cool because i actually um i have a hobby of rewriting songs to be dark um and like I, I've got a cover that I do of um, Dance Monkey by Tones and I. When that's sung mm. creepy and dark, that's a really dark song. Yeah. Um, and Did you I, see will that? Su- I Will Survive by <laughs> Gloria Gaynor. That can also be very cute, creepy. Yeah, the the uh, Lay Lady Lay by Ministry. Mm. It, I mm-hmm. sent you a link to that. You know, like I, I've been listening to that pretty much all week. And yeah. <laughs> that's just, I, you know, I, I heard the album when it came out when I was, you know, young and I haven't really listened to that one for a while. I think it was on filth and uh, mm-hmm. it just came on my Spotify the other day. And I was like, Oh my God, I have mm-hmm. to listen to this on repeat <laughs> over and over and over. Again. Sometimes you get that with songs and, and yeah. um, it, it's always a bit magic when you find that. And um, long time listeners will know, I like building playlists around vibes and um, sometimes you want a sad playlist. It happens. Sometimes you yeah. feel like it. Yeah. So um, you will all be able to add Mr. Sandman by Simul to that playlist. Uh, I think once you've heard it, you'll be like, yeah, that's going on the list. Yeah, I got to check so, it out. Um, yeah. But what about you, Sam? What have you been up to this week? Oh, well, um, as most of you will know, the Townsbury build-off came to an end, um, well, two days when this goes out live. But as we're recording this, it went, it finished like 10 hours ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Um, I, I've just spent this morning uh, gathering up photos and all that kind of stuff. I've still got to go through everything and decide who's the winners and who's, you know, not. Uh, so many entries. Like, I, I think I ended up getting, like, 15 entries in the last day. 
because <laughs> everyone was holding on to the last minute i had a couple people messaging me going hey like how long do i have left oh god i'm like still doing blue up and i'm like uh you're gonna run out of time <laughs> mm, blow on it <laughs> <laughs> that's it um but yeah that's that's taken up a lot of my time i i did start a townsbow build off like a entry kind of thing just for fun um, but unfortunately with a lot of stuff going on in my personal life, I wasn't able to complete it. I got a how to forge video done and that will be out before this, uh, Fog podcast goes live, um, on how I forged that one. Cause I forged it with the specific intent of having it as close to finish forged as you could possibly get like absolute minimum work required after, uh, heat treat. Um, so, uh, I'm hoping to get that one done sometime in the next few weeks uh i forged a penny scroll guard for it which is you know my old favorite for for my forged forged customs um but yeah that's that's pretty much taken up all of my time is just organizing all of that i've still got to organize uh, i've still got to make the billet of damascus that's going to be going to the second place winner uh and then i have to contact the first place winner to um get them to tell me what they want for their hammer and then I need to organize to send out big, big packages of blocks of wood and stuff to everyone. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's been been fun. I did sell my fly press uh, recently to fund some of the stuff that's going on in my personal life. So How Marty big? is, uh, it's a four and a half tons, just a little baby. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I had to say goodbye to Marty McFly Press. Um, <laughs> it's always sad to see him go. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, unfortunately needs must, and, you know, money doesn't come for free, you know, yeah, you know it yeah. doesn't just drop from the sky. Yeah, it'd be um, nice if we did. It really would be, honestly. Well, and you, you run out of space, you run out of space in the shop, you know, I mean, This is true, I mean, the, the hope is that, um, you know, like, eventually I won't have to worry about that as much, but... Uh, in this case, it was literally just needed to finance some shit and mm. didn't have the money in in re- reserve. So, um, yeah, other than that, that's, that's pretty much it. My song of the week this week uh, is in reference to the amount of difficulty I have getting out of bed in the morning at the moment. <laughs> and it's by a singer that I've listened to for a long time. Uh, who's kind of gone through periods of like being super popular and then going through periods of everyone hating them um, because they get played too much. Um, and that's John Mayer. Uh, and the song is Gravity because it's really holding me down when I'm trying to get out of bed in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I blame Gravity and not my, you know, severe lack of will to work. (laughs) I feel you. Oh, seriously. I mean, gravity seems to be working e- better on me these days than it did past in the past because you know I happen to have gained about twenty kilos. But you know, well, the older I get, the mo- the stronger gravity seems to be. Seriously, I think that the Earth is just gaining mass, just <laughs> specifically in a, like a dimensional pocket just around me. Yeah. You know. <laughs> hey man, if the world didn't suck, we'd all fall off. Yeah, <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> it's very true. But anyway, thank you very much for joining us, Marcus. I, I greatly yeah, appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Thank you. Um, what have you been up to this week? Uh, um, well, I'm trying to get holiday orders out. Um, mm. Tis the season. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's also the season for emails. 
from Etsy customers <laughs> wondering if they're going to get their stuff on time. So mm-hmm. a lot of customer service uh, scenarios. In a perfect world, I would probably hire someone to do my customer service because I don't really have a lot of patience, um, especially if it's, <laughs> you know, like None if it's, a, I mean, well, I'm, I used to work in a psych ward and I was told on a regular basis that, that I had the patience of a saint. To mm-hmm. which I would always reply, I have patience for those who, who absolutely need it, and I have no patience at all for those that don't. And my instinct for for who gets patience and who doesn't is very high, and I tend to get a lot of uh, people coming to me that deserve no patience at all. This, and it's this really... might come across as offensive. I don't uh-huh. intend it. I would like to just preface this by saying I don't intend it to be offensive. Okay, are, being offensive, Alex. Jeez, there are different. <laughs> there are different kinds of madness. Oh yes, and some I have all the patience in the world for, and others like the madness of what customers can do. Mm-hmm. I have very little patience for, and it yeah. is. It can be type of madness and particularly around holiday season yeah madness of the mind and madness of the ego are two very different things yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i i mean i understand i understand you know with customers uh that are concerned about their you know things and and of course you know i'm so used to it you know like this time of year it happens every time so i'm i'm very courteous and polite with that um and let people know you know like it's it's all right there like etsy provides you all that information here it is here are screenshots and you should be okay but i do know you know there's the constant frustration of the people that don't read or aren't familiar you know i have to remind myself (laughs) not everyone is familiar with shopping online Mm -hmm. all the time or on etsy or what have you and you know i do it every day because it's my job so i'm aware of it yeah, not everybody is. I have to remind myself of that sometimes, um, and take some deep breaths. But <laughs> I think the the hardest part is that we exist in a world where, like, the majority of the online buying that people do is from large multinational corporations. Yeah, that have hundreds of staff members to deal with, you know, orders and stuff like that, and they have a backlog of stock. So when they come right. to you as a an individual artisan, it's like. I expect the same service. <laughs> right. And, you know, when things are made to order, you know, that's a, I mean, and it says that they're made to order, like in mm. the description, um, but people don't read that. And yeah. I put, and Etsy isn't necessarily, uh, doesn't particularly function well for made to order items. I don't know if you guys have noticed no, that. But, yeah, I've, I've done a bunch, um, but yeah. Yeah. So it's like you, I put in like the number of, items that I have available, um, I put in a number, you know, usually arbitrary, but it's usually representation of like what I have in stock to make that so that when it runs out of stock, I know when to order new materials for that item. Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will confuse that with a uh, already finished product and they will email me angrily that it's taken too long um, when in multiple places throughout the the description and the shipping and everything. It says that it's a made-to-order item. And one of the things it's... my wife sells is uh, on uh, digital patterns for crochet. Um, and oh. she will have little plushies that you can make of characters from video games and things. But they're a yeah. digital pattern so that you can make it yourself. 
but they're about $2.50. And of course, being a digital pattern, there's no shipping cost. And the right. number of people that will buy it off her, despite it being plastered, including in the image that it is a digital pattern, people will think that it is a actual physical plushie with free shipping yeah. for $2.50 yeah. sent internationally. And they will yeah. just chew her out and abuse Man. her and demand their money back. And it's it's it happens probably about 12, 15 times a week. Yeah. I mean, that that's insanely frustrating, but it's also a really great illustration of what it's like to sell things on Etsy. Yeah. It really is. I mean, I mean it's selling it, things that's online just, in general, not just Etsy. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And and that's 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 a I mean, I had an online business before I started uh, Troll Cunning Forge. Um, my wife has an online business. We we understand, you know, like what it's like to run an online business outside of Etsy as well. And it is it's a constant it's a constant struggle. But Etsy is a special special place. Mm. Yeah. Yes. It has its own special problems. Yes. They're, fre- they're frequent. <laughs> so your week has basically been Christmas prep. <laughs> uh, yeah, Christmas prep. Um, I'm also working on some really great uh, projects right now for a uh, occult author named Frater Archer, who I believe is in Germany. Um, and he has really ordered quite a few really cool things for me um which are very exciting things that i've made previously and then he wanted some custom things done and i really like his his work um i like his uh aesthetic i like his philosophy i like what he's doing um the type of work that he's doing is is true to my heart you know like he explores paracelsian um alchemy and that is something that actually is what drew me to blacksmithing in the first place, which I don't think a lot of people know. Um, but that's what kind of got me started. And so I made uh, and completed a couple of different projects for him. Um, this dagger. Mm. Nice. It's one of them. It's like a, almost like a Chris type. Yeah. 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 And I really like uh, asymmetrical blades. <laughs> I think it kind of stands out yeah. um and then i completed this today very cool sickle yeah yeah do you love those i i i i really love making sickles <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's seen your instagram would have noticed i think the yeah I think, signs. I, I think so yeah <laughs> yeah that's true um and i just i just uh within the last three months think the maybe the middle of summer i think i learned a little technique um for uh, uh upset corners that i wasn't aware of previously that mm-hmm. really helped me get uh the geometry that i wanted for the sickles to look just as just the specific way which is yep. the way that you'll see them most frequently illustrated or drawn in like fantasy novel, you know, like mm-hmm. comics or what art or whatever. And it was like, that's, that's it right there. That's the thing that was missing. And so my sickles just kind of like, and so once you learn a certain thing, a new technique or you, you figure something out, everything has to have that. 
<laughs> so you just do it over and over again because you just love it and you're just like yeah, oh you, always, my God. you can always spot when someone picks out like learns a new skill because suddenly it's yeah. all that they do for like yeah. half a year <laughs> yeah absolutely until you get tired of it and you want you yeah. know you need a new challenge and you know so uh, and one good thing about sickle projects is that you know with a good 99.9 recurring percent accuracy that that's not a stock removal project mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean it's really hard it's yeah. a sickles are a trick and i use i use a two by 72 grinder you know like mm. a, my belt grinder to 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 grind the insides of it and but your um, sickles are also like true circle sickles so yeah. th- that's even that's more difficult yes i had a giant bruise on my chest <laughs> uh the shape of a sickle uh for about six months and that was my Ouch. little mark of honor and learning the uh, process of grinding sickles to an edge. And uh, um, there was a hole in my wall and um, several gouges in my uh, my belt grinder I think, wheels. I think, though, that's it's kind of a rite of passage. Everybody has gone, you know what, I'm going to do an extreme recurve. And then this happens. <laughs> and it's like you've, you've now got that, that scout badge that yeah. I have nearly died doing my first extreme <laughs> recurve. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i mean it's really hard um i think it was at heavy metal forge he wanted to do uh a uh a sickle inspired by my my work and and he asked me if you know i would mind if he post you know tagged me on it and all this stuff which i thought was really awesome of him and and um and i talked to him about it i was like what you think you know like about the process and he's like <laughs> he's like this sucks. This sucks. <laughs> this was horrible. Um, and I was like, wait till you try to grind it. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I mean, and you know, if, if you like get away, a small karambit is a pain in the ass. Yeah. I can't imagine doing a full yeah. Sickle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, uh, and you know, the Chris, the Chris blades, you know, like those are mm. ex- exceptionally challenging as well. I mean, always yeah. within the, the recurve of the Chris, I always end up, really just struggling with the um the thickness you know like yep. in be- you know like there's always this little I, bridge in between the two curves you know like on the inner to, you know the recurve. to deal with um recurves i actually like made myself a one inch wide platen with radius edges nice. and i'd split my uh, split my two inch belts in half yeah. Um, so that I had like a one inch contact service and I, that, that made things so much easier. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. That's an awesome idea. I mean, I've been using, uh, I use one inch belts for that process, yep. uh, for all my recurve stuff. And I use, uh, the scalloped belts. Yeah. Yeah. Scalloped belts are amazing. Yep. Mm. Such That's... a super tool. Yeah. As long as you don't catch them with an edge, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, the lashes, you know, yeah. like uh-huh. uh, the belt lashes, those are always fun. Yeah. The other, Instant the only other thing nine tails. I know. The only yeah. other thing I've used for doing recurves and stuff like that, I did a karamba a while ago because um, I have a tilt grinder, so I tilt on its mm-hmm. side and I used a small wheel and I, you know, used the, the small wheel horizontally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a lot easier than trying to use a like a straight up and down belt. I bet. I bet. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I would mm. really like to get one of those. Um, 
Broadbeck Ironworks sells a, a pretty mm, snazzy Their grinder setup looks really nice. Yeah. yeah I think Kyle, Kyle Roy has one now. He does, yeah. They gave him yeah. a full set with all all the trimmings. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. All the juicies. Ooh. Yeah, I know. I'm so envious every time I see it. I'm like, oh, damn, I want that. <laughs> I just want the yeah. freaking surface grinder attachment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, God. I mean, those almost cost as much as a belt grinder. They, I, mean, well, I mean, here in here in Australia, there's only one company that really makes them, and they are worth about the same amount as you'd pay for the grinder. <laughs> so it's oh, it's murder. It's murder. I've seen I've seen like full surface grinder, like actual machines worth about the same. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like the big guys that like stand up on their yeah, own. Yeah, that's with all the just what they're pumping over them, and yeah. yeah. Totally, David Litch has if one I, of those. If I that had the space sick. and the money, I would have one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I saw one at uh, David's. Uh, when I was uh, taking a class with him, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's, it's a beast!" I mean, <laughs> this thing is huge. <laughs> like, I mean, comparatively to like the 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 setups that people have for their grinders, I was just like, "Yeah, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah." It, it is it is a, an industry of scale in that in that event. Yeah, absolutely. But so, um, did you what, um, have a sorry. song that you wanted to add to the playlist? Me, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think, God, I'm so torn. There, you know, I sent you a torn ton by of them. Natalie Ambruglia. There we go. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think I already said it earlier. I think I'm just going to go with uh, "Lay Lady Lay" by Ministry. Um, right. That is. Mm. Yeah. Songs right. has been, you know, it's been on repeat in the, the the shop pretty much for a week and a half now. So. Yeah. You know you're on a good one when you're happy to just have it on loop like uh, all day. Yeah, I was absolutely. like that when I discovered um, Hot Action Cops cover of Comfortably Numb. I literally listened to oh. nothing else for two days straight. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, I, um, I, yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, but it's, it's, it's a great song. It sounds, it's one of those ones that sounds ridiculous on paper, like absolutely like, insultingly yeah. ridiculous. It is a ska punk cover of comfortably numb and you're like that <laughs> is awesome. blasphemy and i will not tolerate it in my church um but then you listen to it and you're like oh my god this absolutely slaps this is this incredible is, this is the kind of blasphemy i like all right they didn't even re- they didn't even put it on an album or anything they made it for fun that's oh man i love that i mean uh was it um tv on the radio uh dude from nine inch nails and uh, Peter Murphy from Bauhaus all did um, a Bella Lugosi's Dead backstage, just jamming with each other. And they recorded it on YouTube. That was the only place that where you could find it. Yeah. And it was just yeah. such an amazing, like all of the those bands and those groups and those musicians together playing that song together, adding their own vibe to it was just like, what? God, those those things real. that never make it to an album and are just an impromptu thing are always killer. Like um, yeah. Ed Sheeran and Passenger, two people I don't listen to individually, did a mashup um, in a live event that they were doing of uh, Thrift Shop and um, No Diggity. Mel- <laughs> melded them together. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. incredible. Wow. Like, it, <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, those mashups. I mean... God, yeah, and then like driving home today, I was listening to another Al Jorgensen song, um, and they did a Led Zeppelin cover. 
<laughs> just like randomly. Yeah. It was like a sound check, but someone had recorded it live, and it was just like, what? <laughs> what? Oh, my God. So, oh, yeah. Music yeah. drives. Music drives. Like, the the uh, my musical tastes have shifted a bit since I started um, blacksmithing uh, and just just working constantly like uh something that carries you physically that your body almost like entrains to like while you're working um Mm -hmm. like it it really does push towards heavier music you know like it's ironic that heavy metal is called heavy metal you know (laughs) you know and i never really (laughs) listened to a lot of metal um until i started blacksmithing and then i was like I mean, I liked punk and industrial and stuff like that, but there's the, the, the droney drudgery, you know, like of some of the metal, you know, that I listen to, like really like matches the, the rhythm of the work itself and yeah. keeps you focused. And mm-hmm. I really appreciate that because it's the, the stuff that keeps you focused. I mean, no offense. I've tr- I've tried to listen to podcasts while working. And it distracts me like way too much because I'm, I'm. How caramel baritones are very relaxing and it puts people to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean I want to listen to and I want to listen and think about what someone is saying. And sometimes you just want to get lost in the rhythm. Yeah, absolutely, and it's the rhythm that 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 really carries you through the day. You know, like when you're working, and yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, Yeah, Electric Electric Wizard is another one that I listen to a lot, and uh, a band called uh, Big Business love them they're pacific northwest band and uh there's just something about their vibe that you can relate to living here and i just really love that yeah so to the listeners that we've got that aren't familiar with your work or maybe are just getting familiar with your work you've got a very different vibe to most people in the biz Mm -hmm. very different sort of uh, uh aspect of the craft um do you want to sort of give Give the listeners a rundown of who who is Marcus McCoy. What is Troll Cunning Forge? What what is it that you do? What are you bringing to the scene so that they can sort of frame you right before we dive into things? Sure. I mean, I I uh, I do work uh, and provide items that are mostly sundries uh, used by people that practice witchcraft, folk magic, and um, you know, people of pagan persuasion, occultists, things like that. Um, I try to uh, uh, pull from uh, traditional folklore, um, folklore that revolves around blacksmithing, uh, as well as just uh, traditional witchcraft, uh, folk magic. Um, it's quite a and, rich and history occult. of folklore regarding blacksmithing. Absolutely. I mean, blacksmiths were, I believe... Um, in my heart, uh, the primordial magician, you know, like they were the first mm-hmm. magicians in, in my opinion, um, turning and, dirt into tools. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We were, we were the sorcerers and somehow that in some cultures that still happens today and it mm-hmm. still exists. Um, but you know, in, in an, a post-industrial society that's considered mostly nonsense. Um, so a lot of people, approach it and surprisingly i haven't gotten a lot of shit um from a lot of other blacksmiths about it which i was really 
when I first started out, I kind of feared that I would get a lot of crap. But what mm. I learned was that I think a lot of uh, a lot of other Smiths are really fascinated by the folklore and ancient history of it, and that's also what kind of brings us all together. You know, yeah, like we are even, we are interested in that. Even a, a coldly metallurgical based Smith like myself um, <laughs> really loves the mythos and the you know like the folklore around blacksmithing. Like, yeah, you know, it, it's what engaged me in the beginning anyway. Uh, you know, all of us grew up with tales of Excalibur and, you know, like, you know, these magical tools and weapons, Mjolnir, all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that that lives in the heart of every blacksmith, you know, to a certain extent. We all love that magic of steel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that, like, some of us steer away from, like, marketing ourselves in that area because it feels very you know vaudevillian you know sort of you know a, a, a pretense um but and I sometimes think, it know, is oh well a lot of the Absolutely. time it is i see yep. quite a few people that sell stuff that i'm it's very obvious that they have no respect for what they're doing yep. it's just they're doing it because it make, m- makes money yes yeah, uh, but i think in in your sense you like you know i i really like the way that you're you approach the the whole you know aspect you've done a lot of research obviously you have a great deal of respect for the practitioners uh and so therefore it it carries across in your work and that's why i think you haven't really seen that much pushback is because it doesn't seem like a blatant cash grab for you know just what's popular at the time kind of thing yeah yeah it's funny thank you it's it's objectively a it's got some magic to it even in today because I, i used to run classes and wherever possible in my workshop i still use a coal forge Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the classes that I, uh, one of the lessons that I gave in the in the second part two course that people did was forge welding. And if you've ever taken a coal forge or a solid fuel forge up to a forge welding heat, um, the fire changes in a way that uh, your brain can't quite handle because basically the heat is so intense it's warping the air around it. Yeah, uh, and, and so it looks strange like your, your brain can't quite handle what's going on with it and mm-hmm. uh light that it is putting out is in wavelengths that are bordering on actually visible to the human eye mm-hmm. and it's just it's a weird thing it looks like this portal into a fire dimension and it you it will eat it will destroy whatever you put in there if you leave it too long because coal oh, yeah. will li- <laughs> liquefy steel oh yeah yeah, yeah. and I always used to say the same thing to students because they'd be like, how do I know when the fire's up to heat? And I'm like, well, first off, you'll know. (laughs) You'll just know. The fire will change. And that's the only way I can really describe it. The fire is going to change. And then I'd explain, like, look for the spark, that particular type of spark and things like that. Every single one of them would come away afterwards and go, you're right. That was freaking weird that the fire just became something else. And they all sort of treated it like it was this magic Mm-hmm. And it was something to be you know, like objectively respected. Mm-hmm. I mean, like a, a gas forge doesn't give you that yeah. feeling. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, it's not the same. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when gas... things border on the limits of what the human eye and ear and nose can sense properly, um, your brain sort of goes into a weird state of like, ooh, it's a little bit unknown and a bit magic-y and I'm a little uncomfortable about this. <laughs> And you've got to, as a blacksmith, if you're working with solid fuel, you've got to overcome that and learn to harness it 
and it is a potent force to harness because it will yeah. straight up murder you if you're yeah. not careful. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, I th- that was that was the on that note. I mean, that was the thing that that uh, really put me into uh, you know let me feel that that blacksmithing was for me. You know, like I took a class and uh, I was like immediately like my senses were alert because there was danger. You know, like I was able to focus. I'm like one of those guys that's more adrenal focused, you know, like a like a cop or a soldier or, you know, so, you know, I was, I, you know, my job was violence for 15 years. And um, when I'm in a dangerous situation and other people are in danger, I, you know, like my mind is immediately centered and clear. Mm. And so like when I got into blacksmithing, I got that exact same thing. You know, that mm-hmm. total centeredness and focus that I don't have in all all the other areas of my life. You can ask my mm-hmm. wife, you know, she'll tell you, <laughs> you know, like, but the, but the, 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 the act of, of smithing was just this, it was, it was what mystics try to, you know, uh, achieve in, through their meditations, you know. And, and oneness with the craft. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of things started like kind of coming to me about it that, uh, you know, I shouldn't have probably known uh, at the time. And it it's was, a common theme that you hear a lot. And it's a lot of people find that metal work uh, really helps them with um, sort of mental health issues because mm-hmm. hitting, hitting hot steel, like it just, it lasers your focus. The rest of the world drops away and it's, yeah. it's got a sort certain just, uh, effect on you because probably because of that danger because you are working with stuff that can injure you quite significantly and mm-hmm. the focus is required but once you realize that you've got a handle on this the focus stays it doesn't go away it's Agreed. it's also somewhat primordial i think like one of the things that really gets me these days and it's something that i've been quoted as saying a number of times is that the entire modern world came off the face of an anvil mm. um and yeah. You know, like I feel a very much more in touch with history when I put hammer to steel because, you know, it is one of the oldest trades, right? Like, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, we were working with wood and stone and bronze before we were working with iron. But, you know, when we think of the modern world, we think of, you know, like steel tools. Yeah. Um, and so, like, as a blacksmith, you are so much more in touch with history. Uh, standing at the anvil because there is no way to modernize it past a certain point right like you at the end of the day you are still striking hot steel there's no way to move past that um you can industrialize it completely and you know turn it into a machining but you're no longer a blacksmith at that stage you're just a machine operator yeah um so as a person standing in front of an anvil with a hammer you are you know in a way performing exactly the same rites and rituals that you would have been doing you know, 1500 years ago, you know, like in, in some mud pits in, you know, the middle of, you know, Northern Germany. Right. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, like one of the, one of my great passions is like kind of trying to recreate techniques and, and tools from that, that period. And, you know, like uh, explore that aspect of it and perfect my forging abilities. Um, and so like, I think that's one of the magics of our craft is that there are so many different aspects that are not the physical actual work 
um, that also kind of lend itself to the the energy, so, you know, if you want to use that term, energy surrounding sure. our work. Uh, yeah, and I've gotten really into looking at the folklore and, and like, uh, trying to understand the magic that blacksmiths did and, like, how they thought about it and, like, what it was that they were doing and um, how they were, I mean, they were, they were revered and feared as sorcerers around the world. I mean, every culture that has blacksmiths, you know, like yep. thinks of them as a fairly able to grab a demon by its nose with his tongs and yeah, to yep. do things or, yeah. or highly dangerous in their own right. I mean, you, because of the sorcery that they wielded, I mean that they, they could do things beyond just move metal. You know, they, they had power to achieve change in the world that normal humans didn't have and well, so like looking at that and trying to figure out what that was and what they did and how they viewed things was really is has been a really interesting exploration i think one of the most telling um sort of bits of evidence about that is that um in smaller communities from history before there were town halls where people could meet um the blacksmiths workshop would often be the place where people would meet because mm -hmm. the fire kept it warm mm -hmm. and there was mm -hmm. usually lots of places to sit and things because people would often be waiting for stuff to be done there and because of that the blacksmith was always present and because he was revered for what he could do he was often asked for his input and wisdom into these matters that were being discussed in these in these um meetings that were happening there mm -hmm. i mean the, to hold the, hold that place of prominence just shows the reverence that people would have for them mm -hmm. the the beauty of that is that it still exists today like um i was watching amazing kk daily which is a cambodian blacksmith channel on youtube mm -hmm. and you regularly see like the camera pan around and there's just you know half a dozen to a dozen men just hanging around waiting for their stuff to be made and they're all chatting and they're all drinking and they're all you know whatever and, you know, like, uh, Roseth the Smith is actually, like, he's, you often see people talking to him, asking him questions and stuff like that. And so, like, you know, obviously it's because of uh, the community it don't, doesn't have the access to the internet and all that kind of stuff that we do. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, they're a slightly more impoverished nation. But that exists, that, that whole culture surrounding the blacksmith still exists because they provide a necessary function in that community. Right. Um, but beyond that, I think one of the, my favorite things about being a blacksmith that has existed since blacksmiths have begun and still exists today is the fact that we are the ultimate tinkerers. Yeah. We are, you, you know, like the looking at blacksmiths back in the, like the medieval days and trying to figure out how they came to the conclusions they did. And a lot of it can be get like run down to the fact that they were like, I wonder what this does. Right. <laughs> what if I did this? Like, you know, we, we talk about like um, in, in circles surrounding like the manufacturing of steel, smelting of bloomery steel and all that kind of stuff in the early days. Um, we, we acknowledge that there's very little evidence that they were planning on making steel, mm -hmm. right? They knew that they could create iron by smelting ore. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a strong belief that they basically just built taller and taller smelters until one day they were like, huh, when we stick this stuff in water, it gets hard now. We don't know why, but that's good. <laughs> yeah, and there's like, and that, you know, and that was pure happenstance to then to the point where they were like, oh, well, what we found is that the taller we build our smelters, the more likely we are to get this material that hardens. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore we can now actually try and make this stuff. Right. Um, Have you guys you, done you that? 
<laughs> Not yet. Sam's Sam's been present for one. Um, I've I've been planning one for ages, but finding the time because it's a commitment to do that um, has been because I'm out. For me, I'm out in the sticks. I'm out in the middle of right. nowhere. I can do it easy. It's a bit harder for Sam to do it because he's in the it's, urban area. It's funny we have the exact opposite problems. Like I have the time and the know how and like access to materials. I have no space. Uh, you're so, you're you live in an urban environment then yeah yeah i live in suburbia I, yeah and at the moment like my shop is on a property that i no longer belong to yeah um it's, it's, it's extremely all very, challenging the one uh, we didn't do a, a proper smelt we did a half steel smelt where we smelted down a whole bunch of like mild steel and you know mm-hmm. various detritus to create a bloom that we then refined mm-hmm. um it was fun Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do plan on doing more smelting in the future. Yeah, we did. We did some. Um, me and a group of other guys. Uh, man, I mean, we even made the charcoal ourselves, and mm-hmm. you know, like hauled the mud and did all the things. I mean, it was pretty That's primitive. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we didn't really get a lot out of it uh, to work with, and didn't really. I mean, we we kind of knew what we were doing, but. Yeah. <laughs> But that's the thing. Like, fun to just but I'm really around, though. yeah, totally. I'm really impressed by the guys that are doing Woots uh, steel mm. and their their own little foundries, backyard melters, and um, that's something I've been really interested in uh, exploring a little bit. Well, uh, we've we've had uh, Peter Burt, um, who's quite famous mm-hmm. for his Woots work, and Aaron Finn, Aaron Finn. From here in Australia, who does yeah. Woots as well. Yeah, I just saw him uh, last night actually when I was looking it up, and I was like. All right, you know, like it's, you know, and there's some YouTube videos of people doing yep. it, and and I'm like, oh, Peter, Peter has some amazing content on his channel about the creation of Woots and the science yeah. behind it. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because I also really love, 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 love uh, Middle Eastern and Indian style uh, uh, blades and um, mm. their 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 shapes and <laughs> science. Like my the, my the, brain's just going to like, oh, we just had Jordan Lamoth on the <laughs> on the show. Yeah, I mean, uh, like talking about Indian bl- and, and and Black Middle Dragon Forge, like he yeah, just did meals with these kanjars. He hit the stuff that he just did recently. Just is just like, yeah, ah, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, just amazing stuff. You know, um, that's it. Like. And that, but that's the the true magic of steel, though. Is like the true magic of the blacksmith began with the creation of steel, or the the discovery of iron, because iron doesn't occur naturally, very commonly, right? Like iron as a pure substance doesn't occur naturally unless it's meteoric iron, or sometimes you get mm-hmm. you know small fragments of bog iron. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that there had to have been a, a point in time where people discovered the ability to smelt iron ore mm-hmm. um which would have come from smelting malachite or the copper ore to create mm-hmm. copper uh mm-hmm. and probably you know moved on from there uh just I, I love the fact that blacksmiths in the early days literally just took dirt and made it into tools yeah yeah and like that if if, if anything that is true magic like yeah you, you take this random brown sludge and then turn it into a very hard piece of shiny metal <laughs> it genuinely saddens me how much of that magic has been lost and, and continues to be lost because um like the attitudes are different in this sort of consumerist society people just they don't look any further past buying it at the shop as to mm-hmm. where it comes from 
Yeah. And mm. it's a it's a surefire way to make me rage. I had a post go um, unexpectedly viral on Instagram recently, and I've been dealing with some of just the shittiest comments from people. <laughs> oh my I god, need, I, I, it's I'm unreal sometimes. Coop. And I needed some hinges for it. And it was just for the lid of the nesting box. So they didn't have to be particularly fancy hinges. And I wanted to get back to working on the coop. So I quickly ran into my forge, went through my scrap pile, and I forged out a couple of sets of Viking hinges, just like looped over through a punched hole. Simple, nice and easy. And that video of me doing that went viral. And it's just full of people going, you know, nice work. You could have just spent $3 at, at the hardware store, you know, and I'm like, you don't understand. I needed a thing and I made that thing appear out of nothing. And you think I'm the idiot. That's fucking crazy. Right. Yeah. That's it. Uh, like, I mean, I, I get people message me occasionally like, hey, uh, where, do, where would I be best place to buy tongs? Or where would be the best place to buy, uh, you know, hot cut chisels or, you know, hardy yeah. tools? And I'm like... Listen, if you're a blacksmith, <laughs> if you want to become a blacksmith, uh, buy maybe buy your first set of tongs, sure. But mm-hmm. after that, make your own. <laughs> just Go to a construction is- site, get some free rebar. And just make some stuff. Every every time I do a demo out in like anywhere I do like demos, medieval reenactment community or whatever, I always end up taking the very minimum of tools. I take my tongs, my hammers, maybe a hot cut chisel, and I almost always end up going, ah, damn, I wish I'd brought my hole punch. That's right. Grab a piece of rebar, forge a taper on it. Hey, hole punch. Um, right, yeah. it, it, that's the magic of blacksmithing is the fact that if we need a tool, we make it. You sure. Know, like, it's Absolutely. one of the only trades where we can take literally a mangled mass of metal and turn it into a usable tool. That is you know, trash like, to anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Yeah. yeah. You know, a stock removalist can't turn like can't make a kitchen knife out of a ball bearing. And there's a million different ways to do that one thing too. And that that you yeah. know, that's that I mean, that's what's so amazing. And and if you take a class from someone and they start you out by making the tools to make the thing that you're going to do in that class then you mm-hmm. found a really good teacher mm-hmm. you gotta say i mean yeah. that's like uh i just did that at old west forge we did the classic um wall mounted uh what do you call them god damn uh, like coat rack no <laughs> it's no it's the uh uh wall screen the wall oh, yeah. screen so, you know, this is one of the things that you have to make to become a member of the American Blacksmithing Association. Yeah, Bama, yeah. And, yeah. and so uh, that was the project, was making that. And um, you have to make all the tools to make mm-hmm. the project, including the tongs and the chisels and the punches and all the different things. And, you know, everyone, I think, wants this instant gratification of, mm-hmm. like, making a knife you know mm-hmm. or uh making the thing and they don't think about all the other stuff that goes into it you know and and the the teacher um he he really pointed out a lot of great things from uh his teacher uh Jerry who is kind of a infamous uh blacksmith around uh, my parts and he would hold these classes, his teacher, Jerry, he would hold classes and 
he would spend pretty much the entire class teaching you that you aren't going to make all the stuff that he just made. Not That's yet. Really? <laughs> Not yet. At that you had to like you had to learn all these things and so it was it was to like push people out of that instant gratification thing and to understand right. that this is a, a very long gradual process of learning lots of different things over a very long period of time that will get you to that point. But you, you go home with the beginning tools and knowing how to make those beginning tools. And it teaches you, know? you something that like Alex and I consistently hop on, on the show, which is the why. Because, yeah. like, in blacksmithing or in any craft, anything, learning the why is the most important way to learn the how, right? Yeah. Because if you learn why you do something, then you know why, like, you know how, to, you, you can yeah. then learn how to do it. Right, right, uh, absolutely. Because you, you learn you how do is, to do something. If all you do is read books and take classes, is you're only learning the what and the how. Yeah, It's yeah. not until you start doing it yourself and screw up and learn from it and figure stuff out and do some tinkering like Sam was talking about blacksmiths love to do that mm-hmm. you start getting this really good picture of the why yeah. and you doing it your way is going to develop a why that may not have occurred to somebody else and sharing that knowledge is how we expand right and with you know like with what I do with the, the yeah mm. what I do with the esoteric like uh, the quenches and all the the, the weird mm-hmm. stuff that I do you know like the um the why is something that I'm, you know, very well studied in. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of people that started kind of imitating it as like a gimmick, you know, first off, and people still are. Um, but they started doing it and they didn't really know the why. And, uh, you know, they, they imitate. Wouldn't but, hold up under scrutiny. No, mm-hmm. it, no, it wouldn't. And, um, you know, people, you know, would, uh, go and, and pay, you know, customers would go and they would pay uh, someone to make something uh, the way I do it with the, the ways that I do things, but in the style that they like from another practitioner, you know, and or, or another smith. And that smith was would be then introduced to, you know, a very odd thing, you know, like, well, you want me to quench it? What? Why? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I mean, but, but they do it. And, you know, certain people started realizing that I think that it was a, a profitable, you know, gimmick for them to pursue. And so they started doing it too. Um, but I mean, the folklore, the reasons, the motivations, the, the amount of research and study that I've gone and the teachers that I've studied under and things. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I studied traditional uh, Scandinavian trolldom from Johannes Karsbeck, who's the author of the book Trolldom. And um, he's a great teacher. I highly recommend anyone that's interested in Scandinavian uh, magical traditions and folk traditions that aren't made up and fictional mm-hmm. based upon historic fantasy recreation, then I would go to him because, you know, Scandinavian folk magic is a living tradition that's continued mm-hmm. on and transformed mm-hmm. throughout, you know, like thousands, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, you know, not hundreds of thousands of years, but hundreds and thousands of years. And the, uh, I mean, some of the things that I've learned just from him, just from, you know, like, and these are documented. I mean, they have, they have grimoires from blacksmiths. 
Mm-hmm. That's it's pretty cool. Awesome. I think everyone awesome. wants one of those in oh, on their I mean, mantelpiece. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I have a translation of one, and it's 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 incredible. You know, like, I mean, that's the problem is a lot of these are in very old, you know, like Swedish or Norwegian and things like that. You know, like it's uh, you have to find someone that's specialized in even being able to translate it. You know, yeah. Do you Which, follow uh, Stick and Rope, the bookbinder? Uh, are they Scandinavian? She is, yes. uh, but she's currently living in Serbia, She, but she's not from Serbia. Okay, and they do um, really old... Uh, they, they look make... ancient. Yeah. Right, yes, I uh, do. I've got, yeah. I've got two of her books. What you need is to get one of those and then do a translation of the Blacksmith Grimoire <laughs> into one of them, and you'll still get all of the look, <laughs> Yeah, but it'll absolutely. be durable as hell. Yeah. So cool, so cool. Yeah, I love th- I love her style. Like That, that work is beautiful, yeah. really cool, like... The, the antiquing um, thing, and that was a really hard thing for me to to do. Because um, your like, work displays quite a lot of that sort of technique. Yeah, and, and I I, uh, I didn't, I like, you know, like 17th century style work. I like things mm-hmm. that look like they were made by a craftsman that, you know, an artisan that worked with their hands for practical purposes, like uh, using very primitive tooling. Um, but like th- they were masters, man. Like, I mean, in the 17th mm-hmm. century, these guys had masterful skills. The only reason my friend Ryan Fogarty, another blacksmith, he, he said it beautifully. He said the only reason why we have things from the 17th century today is because those people were masters at what they did and they didn't do it lazily they didn't do it sloppily they didn't do it just aesthetically so that it looked like crap intentionally you know like and the 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 primitive style of like making something primitively a lot of people will pay top dollar for that sort of thing but it's it's it was done it's very sloppy and it's hmm. but it's done aesthetically sloppy and so it's yeah. it's it's driven by aesthetic and not skill and not yeah. quality and that really bothers me and so i have a real hard time putting myself behind something like that so it was trying to get an antiqued aesthetic that doesn't destroy the uh the function of the piece exactly uh, that I mean, was really ch- that was it finally clicked that I could I could and I could make something nice and very high quality and then antique it a bit aesthetically and be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, and the reason the reason that like antiques look the way they do, the reason that like you know a lot of us love antique tools or antique you know uh, weapons, antique anything, mm-hmm. is because you can tell that when they were made, when they were bright and new. They were well made. Pristine. They were incredibly, you know, high class items. Yeah, and that is the only reason that they exist in the modern world. Absolutely. And, so and as you said, like people who make like quote unquote antique stuff these days, like stuff that has been made to look old, tend to just think that they can just slap something together and you know leave gaps and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's it's rustic. It's handmade. It's whatever. Mm-hmm. And that has always been the bane of my existence. I was because... talking about it a lot when I was doing the, 
that I'm glad to hear that knife that I did recently because I was uh, everybody that would listen. I was telling I'm finding this more difficult than making a a nice pretty thing like yeah. I usually make because it's got to look old. But uh, when we we're talking about the show, Sam pointed out you, you know very rightly so. Like you've got to start out making something that looks nice. And yeah. then fuck it up. Yes. And that was that's a hard thing to do. It's a yeah. really hard thing to do, you know? Like and uh so like the handles that I did with uh with these 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 uh these daggers and, and the mm. sickles and things like that. Most you'll see most of it on the sickles. Um but the it's it you can't really tell with the, the webcam. But the you can see in my, my Instagram um I went with Wenge because I wanted to like, mm-hmm. I started studying, like I w I'm, obs- I'm obsessed with textures, like both forged textures on steel, copper, whatever. And, but also wood and like, uh, the people that are exemplary at getting amazing wood textures are, uh, pipe makers. And mm-hmm. so I started, I started, ex- I started looking and researching pipe makers and their how to videos and stuff like in knife makers, if you guys really want to um, make your pieces look really unique and appeal to the people that want to see what's really beautiful within a natural product, which I think is what's so neat about both lapidary arts and mm-hmm. um, and woodworking, is yeah. that nature exposes unique, brilliant, beautiful things, and people have an eye for that. People want that. They want to see that. And uh, it's an exploration of a medium that nature produced, and you as the maker get to discover that and then share that with your audience. And I think that that's a really beautiful process. And the... the, um, Sorry. Oh, no, just the wood texture, like, techniques that pipe makers have are amazing. Like... You were, Incredible. Well, it was funny because you were talking about that and there's one uh, knife maker that I know that uses uh, pipe making techniques on their handles and that is the artificery. Yes. Um, the artificery. Oh, Absolutely. Where he blasts the wood to yeah. get the grain yep. exposure. Oh, yep. so that, is, so that is a pipe making technique. It's what they use on briar yep. to get that really cool briar um, burl look. Um, yep. And so, yeah, like that was something that I really loved about his work. And, uh, you know, uh, as too. a as a historian knife maker, I really like using natural materials. I think, mm-hmm. you know, all three of us do. And the reason that natural materials are so, you know, appealing to us is because of their inconsistencies, right? Because right. of the, the, you know, because of you, the flaws. You can't flaws do better, really. It's, it's no, been existing it. longer than us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And like, and the thing is, is like, you know, for me, um, like modern stuff like carbon fiber or G10, stuff like that kind of leaves me cold. Absolutely. Um, because it is, it's pristine. It's, you know, it is completely synthetic. It is 100% all the way through the same. Yep. Uh, and unfortunately that leaves no room for character, no room for any emotion in it. Well, there, there's a lot of knife makers that are just, you know, I feel like their, their approach is almost from a machinist standpoint. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and I mean, and if that's where their joy comes from, that's, absolutely. that's fine. But I mean, yeah. there's such a, a depth to nature. The more you mm-hmm. look at it and the closer you look at it and the looking at it and seeing it are two different things. Mm-hmm. It's like even something as simple as the, um, 
the fact that the arrangement of the seeds of a sunflower follows Fibonacci sequence. Things like that are occurring in nature. Natural formation of fractal geometries in snowflakes and things like that are are done all around us, happening constantly, all the time. And it's it's this living art piece that if you you look for it and see it, you can try and bring it home into your own work. And and it adds warmth. Yeah. It adds warmth to your work. And, you know, with working with steel or any metal, really, I mean, like, it, you know, when you're working with, I think, any artistic medium, there's this moment where the thing that you're working with uh, shares its voice to you uh, as mm. to what it wants to become. And some people will think that, well, that's a mistake that I made or an error. It, now it's, it's going to the scrap piece because it's not because they have such a fixed idea of what they're going to make. It's not what I planned. It's not what I planned. Yeah. And you, they miss out on so much discovery because the voice of the thing that was speaking to them that they were working with spoke to them and they ignored it. I, I can you see know? Sam grinning because he's got Niels Vandenberg's voice in his head going, Knives aren't Pokemon. They don't evolve. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I was, I was smiling for a totally different point, but that is funny. No, I was... Um, it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes that I ever heard that I heard originally through a Russian smith who was on a channel called Man at Arms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it was uh, Dogen writing in Genjin Coin, which is a, like a, he's a philosopher from Japan. Mm-hmm. And he wrote that when we let our art convey on to us, that is true artistic expression. Yeah. But when we try and convey ourselves onto art, that is delusion. Mm. Um, and that was that was his like philosophy, and so that's something that yeah, I loved. Put. Anyone who yeah. wants to hear that, um, that's in the Kill Bill Katana episode um, when he's stacking yes. for the uh, Kawagane. But anyway, yes. um, th- that's something that's always kind of flowed with me a little bit because, as much as I like um, the machinist aspect of knife making, I'm a member of mm-hmm. the ABS. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going down that route. Mm-hmm. There is a a very very strong part of me that really loves the the artistic expression of taking a piece of steel and just letting it form in the ways that it will mm-hmm. um a little bit like you know i have a general idea of what i want but it's it kind of conveys itself onto me in the end of exactly how that process goes about it's not about like going into it completely blind right. um it's about going okay i'm gonna make a trailing point bu- buoy and then you start making the trailing point buoy and it comes out with a slightly shorter clip than you're expecting or, you know, mm-hmm. a slightly wider blade than you're expecting because the way the material moved rather than, you know, like one worrying about just, you know, a knife springing <laughs> wholly from the ground uh, with, yeah, with no expectation. And it's like, if you make a mistake, it's like, well, how can I make that mistake beautiful? You know, like, I yeah. mean, I think that's a really great philosophy for living your life. You know, I mean, it's like, there's so many people just eaten up by all their failures instead of like realizing like, well, it's up to me to make those failures something beautiful. And well, Sam I is can our do resident. That. Sam is our resident weeb, so he'll know the word for this. Um, and I know he's going to just say it as soon as I start talking. Um, Swabi sabi. There's a Japanese art of uh, fixing broken pottery Kintsugi. using gold. Oh yeah. There it is. <laughs> yeah. But it, the, the the whole philosophy behind that of how a broken thing can be made into a more beautiful thing by mm-hmm. that art than it was originally mm-hmm. um is it's a bit like that if you make a, a a boo-boo in your work make it into something unexpectedly nicer than what you were in planning 
Absolutely. I think my favorite thing about Kintsugi that I learned recently was that a lot of Kintsugi was done on purpose. Yeah. Right? Like, there was there was this whole theory that Kintsugi was done um, to repair yep. broken things that were broken accidentally. But in a lot of cases, Kintsugi was done on purpose. Like, they would it fire the Jap- clay, they would Japanese. finish it, and they would smash it. It was just <laughs> Japanese potters that had read Fight Club, and they yeah. were all into that whole, you know, self-destruction to, to you know, for self-improvement. Right. Are you guys, are you guys for, to just to slightly change gears a second, are you guys familiar with uh, pewter work at all? Pewter? Pewter, pewter. work, yeah. 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 So it's like one of Alex's favorite alloys. <laughs> I, was that sarcastic? I, I, no, I, no, no, I, no. Gen- he's, he's literally. I, I, I aggressively defend pewter against all the people that think that it's shit. Wonderful. He made a, he made a dagger guard out of it. He made a dagger I, guard I, out I of made it. I made all the fitting, the guard, the yeah. key, keyhole um, bolster, and a pommel on a dagger that I, ca- I called it precious because I wanted to make a beautiful thing that was extremely fucking fragile. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And like mm. the whole, the whole, you know, juxtaposition of that, I wanted to make into like an art dagger. And it came out really cool That's because awesome. I think pewter antiques better than any other material, including silver. That's mm. that's that's great. Um, I become uh, recently very enthralled by it, and um, I was looking. You know, the the British Isles and uh, the and Ireland seem to be like the places where it was pewter work is still done consistently mm. and very beautifully with a lot of skill. And um, I've been looking at uh, copper or well, um, pewter spinning, as well as you know spinning and lathing. Uh, uh, copper because I've I've gotten into metal lathe work from a artistic mm-hmm. angle. I'm I'm definitely not a machinist uh, at <laughs> all, at all. But like I really love uh, any lathe work that I can get my mm-hmm. hands on, whether it's you know metal lathe or or wood lathe. And what I'm discovering, what I just discovered last night was uh, uh, pewter inlays in wood. Mm-hmm. Where they, have you guys seen that? Where they do that? Because you yep. can pour the pewter straight in; it won't. It, it melts at such a low. Temperature. Yeah, and then it bonds to the wood. Yeah, like and and at that temperature, and it's just so cool. And then mm. you can just throw it on the lathe and actually lathe yep. it without lathe it just spinning out. You know, like I mean, it's kind of unbelievable. So that sort of thing has made me really, and and it polishes nice, and it looks beautiful. Yeah. So I've been been really considering getting into uh uh pewter uh, a little enough, bit more pewter was the reason that um people thought tomatoes were poisonous for for a number of uh decades when tomatoes first came to england because pewter originally had lead in it mm-hmm. and the yeah. the problem with lead is that it it's very easily uptaken by acidic things right and so eating tomato on lead plates led to a lot of lead poisoning and so people actually believed that tomatoes were poisonous ah uh, okay because they would get lead poisoning after eating lots of and tomatoes. then somebody's like maybe we could use antimony instead <laughs> and it might yeah. be a little bit <laughs> yeah what do you guys yeah. think about like all the kumai stuff that's coming out now like um with all the <laughs> oh, you're opening a can of worms there. Um, with all, I mean, I, like I, with I, kitchen I, knives and butch, you know, like and with all the different acids and things, you know, like it's really. I'm just wondering, you know, like what the long term. Uh, it's co- copper tarnishes very very easily, but the fact yeah. is, f- fine steel will will rebrighten copper even that's far gone, mm-hmm. uh, and, and any and any handmade knife should be hand washed. 
anyway. And when it comes to like, um, I, I think I get, you know what you're getting at with like copper toxicity, um, because yeah, of, and like, just corrosion as foods. well. Yeah, yeah. So like, um, copper toxicity and stuff like that in foods only requires that it be basically at temperature for quite a while in contact directly with copper, uh, mm-hmm. which is why you're not supposed to use copper pots unless they're tin lined. Right. Um, so in, in the case of like using it in a chef's knife, I don't think that there's a significant enough amount of copper being dissolved into the acidic foods for them to be worried about it. Yeah. I'm not necessarily um, worried about poison, the, you know, toxicity, you know, like I figured that that was probably the case. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think it's more of just like the long, um, just tarnishing of the blades, like mm. over over periods of mm. time. I mean, it's like it feels relatively new. I've made quite a few. I love the stuff. I've made mm-hmm. I've made my own kumai and Alex, things like Alex that. Alex was too. Uh, famously hated by the kumai community for being the first person to put out a full tutorial on how to make I, it. Oh, yeah. good for you, man. <laughs> it, it, had, it, it, was, it was hidden knowledge, and I, I, I took exception to that, and I, I exposed it to the world, and yes, it, it turned into a shit show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got I got shit from some uh, some knife makers, too. Um, mm. and, and, you know, I, I realized that it, you know, I, I mean, I told them, I was like, look, I'm just doing this because I love the art of doing it. I'm not I didn't realize it was some sort of arms race as to like who gets the, the credit for uh-huh. doing whatever first, you know, like, but there are some people that are really competitive about that stuff out there. And these things are highly, you know, like guarded secrets. And, and at I this guess point, that... I'm just a professional Jimmy Rustler though. Like I, I believe <laughs> human knowledge belongs to the world. And if you're, if you're sitting on something and trying to hide it and hoard it, I'm, I'm there in the shadows waiting to find it and right. tell our, the world. Our, yeah. our mission here at the Forgecast is to make sure that all of this stuff is freely available. <laughs> Free and accessible. Good yeah. for you. We That's are, awesome. We are, like it's, it's, it's all about getting that knowledge out there. Have you, there was have a, you there's a YouTube of, uh, video. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, I was um, I was just gonna say, have you ever heard of like Anish Kapoor and um, bloody was it Stuart Semple um, and the whole fight over Vanta Black? No, an artist named Anish Kapoor purchased the rights to Vanta Black, which was an incredibly toxic chemical, but it's also the blackest paint ever, right? Like okay. it, it's a carbon carbon nanofibers and all that kind of stuff creates mm-hmm. like the blackest thing ever. It absorbs like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of light. Okay. Stuart, uh, he purchased the rights and then immediately disallowed anyone from using it except himself. And so Stuart Semple, who was a, a small part-time artist in the UK, heard about that and then immediately set to making uh, the pinkest pink, right? So he, he made this this thing that's the pinkest uh, any you can get ever. It is literally that, and the only per- like the only person not allowed to purchase it, and you actually had to sign a little document whenever you purchased it that you were not a Nishkapur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Simple uh, has now developed a company where they have developed uh, three different types of the blackest black. Now, they now have like black three point mm-hmm. which is now actually just as black as Vanta Black. And in order to purchase it, you still need to prove you are not a niche before. <laughs> That's awesome. 
That's but, so and great. It's the same. It's the same thing for us. It's literally if you're going to withhold some form of techni- technique or you know technology from mm-hmm. the rest of the community, mm-hmm. it's because you are being a possessive asshole and want to grandstand yourself on this on the back of this you know yeah. thing. But we believe that art should be freely expressed in whatever nature it can. Yeah, it's right? why you- we started the Forgecast. We wanted like one like central place where you can just get all of the info you could possibly want. And it's like. You know, yeah. people people have said to me, like, oh, but I won't be unique in that case. And I'm like, if you can't stand out with a technique that you developed mm-hmm. against other people who are using the same technique, then it is not the technique that is your grandstand, <laughs> right? Like, the, yeah, the is, yeah. The competition should not be that, you know, like, I have a technique that you don't. The competition should be I'm just a really good maker. <laughs> and, and and also, I mean, our, so I mean, I, I've run into this myself. And the the someone told me recently that, um, like, it's a saying amongst inventors that if you invent something, and that's your one invention, and you know, like, you're going to stand on that and make mm-hmm. that the the basis of your empire, then someone else is going to take that invention <laughs> and change it a little bit and market it better than you ever could and you're and going to Thomas to, Edison. You're gonna, yeah, <laughs> you're gonna lose your empire. So like a good inventor is someone that goes and uh you know keeps keeps pushing the 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 horizon, you know, like keeps mm-hmm. going as far as possible. I mean I had to do that, you know, like because I, I popularized some basic things and you know like people started making them and selling them and and you know, I was like, well, you can't make that your bread and butter if other people are just going to come and, you know, like recreate the thing that you're making, you know, like yeah. and selling it for cheaper, you know, like, wait, what do you, you know, you can't compete with that. So you just have to do something. You have to keep pushing yourself. You have to keep mm-hmm. ma- making better things and and pushing yourself as well as just like like what it is that, you know, and what you can do and, and just like keep going as far as you can and just make the make it about that (laughs) unless you're you're the novelist harper lee who wrote to kill a mockingbird then she's like i'm good (laughs) (laughs) that one hit wonder is all i need that's it but like um we 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 often talk about like people like kyle royer who um you know is one of like i would argue one of the best knife makers on the planet Mm -hmm. um and he gives away his information in most cases freely he also charges bugger all for classes basically Mm. um and you can do everything he can do right Mm. you you, like you get these classes you you watch his videos you could copy him Mm -hmm. but there is still only one kyle royer yeah (laughs) right like doesn't matter how many people try and copy him there will still only be one kyle royer absolutely he doesn't need to like hide his techniques or hide his like you know his strategies because he mm. knows that he's he is confident in himself. He knows mm-hmm. what he can do, mm-hmm. and he will yeah. continue doing that. Yep. Speaking of Kyle, actually, um, and spreading information, we have a listener email segment, Marcus, that you might be able to help us with. Okay. Uh, people people send in questions about things that we haven't talked about, and um, uh, we get to answer them for them on the show. So um, you're more than welcome to actually pitch in and help us answer if if you've got anything you'd like to add. Okay. Um, 
But our listener email segment actually comes to you thanks to the Royer family and Knife Maker Plus. So you can actually be taught the art of bladesmithing by Kyle himself through a series of gorgeously rendered videos made by his talented brother, Josh. Mm. Uh, it's kind of like having your own personal mastersmith standing by you that you could pause, rewind, and get to show you techniques over and over again as much as you want. <laughs> so... Um, Jump on board now, learnknifemaking.com. Visit it after the show and you can actually have one of the best in the world teaching you. Uh, But our first email comes from Fiery Ignis. And he says, hey guys, I have a question for you. I recently got into forging and so far I've been using a homemade wood forge and I was thinking to invest in a gas forge and with the hiking prices of propane, how long would a 20 pound tank last me at four to six hours a day? And also, I got some old skitter chains, and I was wondering if that's good knife steel. P.S. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. So it's unfortunately a difficult question to answer because it's a little bit like how long is a piece of string or how tall is a tree because it depends what you're doing in the forge, and it depends on the forge. If you have a triple burner sword forge that's going to last for one um, a length of time, if you have a perfectly made post box forge that's going to be a different one so it depends on the psi that you've got to run the number Mm -hmm. of burners the volume that you're trying to heat the uh, type of burner type of burner and what you're actually doing like if you have a forced air burner ribbon burner you can run that an incredibly low psi and that tank will last for a very long time Uh, whereas if you've got a very inefficiently lined uh venturi system then you're going to have to be running that thing at 20th 25 psi just to be able to get to a forging temperature uh if you're making damascus you're going to have to be running that super rich in order to actually be able to get clean welds so it's it's really it's it's hard question or impossible question to answer i'm afraid yeah i mean like my my well sorry uh, my only advice would be um use the smallest gas forge you're able to use for the work that you're making um one of the biggest mistakes i see a lot of beginner blacksmiths making with their gas forges is they get a gigantic forge um Mm. and then they're only making like hairpins and you know like troll crosses and mjolnir pendants like um there's nothing wrong with having a big forge for when you're doing big work but like that's something you get later if you're not if you're gonna make one later right because you no no blacksmith just has one forge uh unless they're using a very large coal forge (laughs) I use um, a three burner and um, I just keep one burner on for yeah. like all the small stuff. I do go through a lot of fuel, you know? Um, yeah. But it's, the, it's a matter of space. It's got quite a large. Yeah. It's yeah. Got quite a large. Yeah. I mean, you uh, lose a lot of heat and you got to heat it up and, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I also, I got a, I got one that opens up on the, the side, which is mm-hmm. the corrosion that comes from the, the propane <laughs> doing this god awful but um yeah you lose a lot of heat from that as well yeah but if you have a a very small post box forge that's got that tiny opening and very small internal volume you can have a very small burner running at five psi and that 20 pound bottle will last you for a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. yeah um i'm actually planning on building myself a smaller post box forge because the one i've got right now can fit a six pound billet of damascus in it Mm -hmm. um but i don't need Yeah, I don't need to run that when I'm making like smaller knives or anything like that. So I'm going to make myself a much smaller one on a much smaller scale because then it's just more fuel efficient. I I've actually want to build. I've got I've got plans for a little paint can one. Uh, oh just yeah, doing jewelry and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've never run a, a wood um, 
Forge. Uh, my friend had one, and he had trouble getting it to um, a good enough heat for some projects. Uh, yeah, I've and, I've run wood before. It can be a bit of a pain. It's a yeah. bit of work. Um, yeah. For small projects, it tends to be okay. Um, mm-hmm. it, and tr- traditionally, Japanese um, smiths would use wood forges quite a lot. Um, but wood turns into charcoal in the process of it, and it's got to be run just right in order to be able to make it practical, which means it's got to be shaped right. It's got to have the right air inflow. There's a, there's a lot, a now lot what, going on. What was the question with the uh, the chain? What did they say? That yeah, they... skid chains. I, um, uh, what's a skid chain? I'm not sure what a skid chain is. Okay. Is it is it something that you is it like the chain that you put on your tires for snow? Maybe. Well, I'm thinking maybe it's kind of like what we have around here in, in the Pacific Northwest. A lot of logging chains. Um, maybe. Yeah. What's the purpose of it? What's he trying to do with it? Uh, he wants to know if it's good for knife steel. Traditionally, steel chains are generally more of a mild steel. Mm-hmm. You can get high carbon steel chains, but they're usually specialty chains. Mm-hmm. Well, if he's looking um, to make knives out of it, I'd guess that the logging chain is probably more likely that that, you know, yeah, he's trying to do like a canister. <laughs> I mean, they must uh, be big links if you think you can. Knife, <laughs> you can make a knife-shaped object out of a chain, you know. Uh, yeah, you could. So, uh, best wouldn't. thing to do would be to grab some and snap test it. Forge it down till it's mm-hmm. about uh, five mil thick and um, maybe you know half an inch wide and three inches long. Uh, put it in a vice, quench it in brine or, or cold water, just really aggressive quench after getting it to non-magnetic and see if it snaps. Mm-hmm. If it snaps, it's hardenable. If it don't snap, not hardenable. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. pretty straightforward. Yep. Yep. So, but, I, uh, you know, hopefully that helps. I used to work with a lot of scrap and try to start um, with, you know, like there's a certain sort of punk rock sort of ethic that goes with trying to salvage <laughs> stuff and, and all mm-hmm. that, and I grew up that way. So, the you know, but I think somebody, maybe it was in a forum, maybe it was in a post, I don't know, but someone said, you know, like, there's so many possible inconsistencies that happen with scrap that uh, if you're doing production and you want consistent results, then working with um, consistent material uh, and buying your steel uh, right off the bat for knife making whatever is is the way to go i mean if you're if you're if your niche is salvaged recyclable materials and that's what you're known for and that's what you're doing cool i mean that's awesome mm-hmm. and i actually um, have a, a video on my youtube channel about this that i did a collaboration with sam uh and jay nielsen and niels vandenberg and uh, Kyle Royer all collabed on the video to explain the differences and go into the the, the realities of its use. Right, uh, it's worth watching if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, no, that's great. No, I'd love to. Yeah, there's, the, I mean, like the a lot of the leaf spring. You know, like I read a lot of really great info on uh, people trying to recycle old leaf springs and stuff, and like the the evolution of leaf springs and their source mm-hmm. and production. And the problems that happened, uh, you know, in different eras, you know, like a lot of steel coming from China was used in it. They were, you know, making fairly low quality leaf springs. That's why you let a lot of vehicles from a certain era you see like with just like destroyed suspensions and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, oh, OK. Whereas like uh, old Studebakers and things like that, you know, their leaf springs are still like very much intact. But there's so many micro fat fractures and so many 
so much stress in some of these uh, leaf springs that they they're not really practical to work with. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I personally don't like working with spring steel too much. Um, I do. <laughs> I you know I like working with ADCRV two mostly. Uh-huh. Um, that's that's my, good, reliable steel. It really is. Yeah. I mean, I I say that it's idiot proof. I mean, it's. <laughs> I mean, it's. I mean, it it's really. Close. Yeah, it's close. I mean, I haven't really fucked it up ever, and and that's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not for lack of trying. <laughs> Not for lack of trying, you know? Like, I mean, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Koi Baker, you know, like he pointed out, you know, like everything likes to stick to it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's highly weldable, you know, like the, yeah. uh, the mushroom blade that I did, the uh, you know, like last week. Um, that was awesome. You know, like I just folded the tang together from both sides, you know, like of the spine and, mm-hmm. you know, just forge welded that with like, just no problems. Plus, plus you got those vanadium carbides in it. Yeah. A really good edge. Yeah, it yeah. really does. I mean, it's, it's awesome stuff. So I, I highly recommend for people that are beginning, you know, like that are, you know, focusing on scrap. There's a lot of people that always ask on forums and stuff like, well, where do I get the steel from? And, you know, like they're just, it's really confusing to navigate all that stuff when you're starting. Yeah. You know, like that's what the forge cast is for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, but 80 series V2 is helped. great. Hopefully that's helped answer your question. Uh, Fiery Ignis. Um, our next email is from Tony. And he says, howdy, howdy. You seem to enjoy my metallurgy question from the other week. So I have another. Oh, this one's for you, Sam. Mm. says, in terms of softening of steel, i.e. for cutting, drilling, etc., is there a significant practical difference in hardness between fully detempered steel and annealed steel? Love the show. Keep up the good work. Tony. Since this is more of a Sam question, I'm going to leave Sam to answer it while I go and do the largest P of my life. I'm going to be right <laughs> back while, while these guys talk. I, I, my back teeth are floating. So, <laughs> so are mine. Uh, well, I mean, you guys can take off if you need. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll handle it. Right. I got this one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, they've left me alone at the wheel, guys. I'm, I'm here alone now. How terrible. All right. Um, so in answer to your question, um, so fully detempered steel, I'm guessing that you mean like a piece of steel that has been hardened and then has been tempered through to gray um, or normalized. I'm not sure which one we're going with. I'm going to assume you mean fully detempered as in it was hardened and has been tempered down to gray. Uh, the main or the key difference between annealed steel and uh, truly annealed steel, that is, and detempered steel, is that annealed steel normally has had its carbides reduced. Now, it's really going to depend on the alloy that you're dealing with, because if you're dealing with like a high carbon, hyper eutectoid alloy like 1095, 80 CRV2, um, you know, like all of the, the, the modern high alloy stuff, um, then there are there's a good chance that in a hardened steel, uh, even as you say, detempered, there will still be the segregated carbides around the alloying content, whether that be the chromium or, you know, the, the vanadium or whatever there is uh, to, to segregate those carbides. So in that event, you are going to be drilling and you might hit a soft spot or you might hit a hard spot. 
Um, that will entirely depend upon how much like segregated carbon you have. Um, in an annealed steel, normally you have, uh, you know, in like properly annealed steel, like sveridized annealed steel, um, the carbides have been uh, basically completely disintegrated because of the heat cycling and, and because it's gone back into solution in the alloy. So uh, you're less likely to hit hard spots in a fully annealed steel than you are in a detempered steel, um, purely because you haven't had the opportunity for those carbides to form during the uh, quenching process. Um, the other problem is that depending on how you go about detempering a steel or like dehardening a steel, whatever you want to call it, um, is that there is a potential that the core of the steel may actually still be hardened um, because heat travels from the outside in and depending on how fast or how slow you do it will depend like on how... Like yeah, effectively you do it. And even the process of normalization doesn't actually fully anneal a piece of steel because uh, the process of a normalization can be fast enough, depending on how cold the you know air is around your workshop, um, to actually partially quench some, port, some parts of your steel. Um, and it, again, doesn't break down the carbides. It doesn't break down those segregated carbides that are amassing around the alloys. Um, so yeah, there is a big fundamental difference between annealed steel and, um, detempered steel, but, uh, in like terms of like in your workshop, a, a, a better, you know, like a, an anneal, which is done in like perlite or vermiculite or in your forge while it's cooling down, which is probably the best way to do it, um, is going to be a million times better than just normalizing or just, uh, you know, like heating it up to gray in a fire um hopefully that helps welcome back guys yes. <laughs> i was gonna i was gonna like yell out from the other room you know uh, oh, come still out me, you. Yellow, come out of me like a yellow cable i'm gonna slash like a powerful horse <laughs> yeah was, I, we, we, we we have the 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 same fullness of bladder it seemed we came back at the same time yeah we came back yeah. exactly the same yeah. time yeah, yeah. Yep. I wanted to like high five the webcam. <laughs> I know, everybody. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully, while we were gone, uh, Sam fulfilled your answer and needs. I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. And our final email comes from Steve, and he says, "Hey, Alex and the Fudge Meister. Oh, no. um, Alien Monkey here. Firstly, thanks to the both of you for your information and entertainment for the past three and a half years. You guys have been caressing my ear nipples from the very early days. <laughs> I haven't used that one yet. Uh, sorry, I've been absent from recent competitions and challenges as my workshop has been in disarray while trying to sell and relocate to my off-grid location. My mm. question is, I have a portable Raplow hand crank forge which was one of those all-in-one units oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which when purchased had no fire pot i repurposed a brake drum for the fire pot but find the solid fuel spills everywhere what sort of table do you recommend i have seen ones with a separate baffle slash chamber where the smith stored coke and continued to dampen it with water can you explain this and if it is useful thank you in advance advance keep up the good work champions steve Yay, Steve. Question. Thanks, Steve. So if you're um, using it, it's going to depend on whether you're using coke or charcoal in your, because yeah. um, charcoal, you don't need to do anything. It's just keep it dry. Now keep it yeah. in, a, in a tub somewhere. Uh, I've, I've got a big old 44 gallon drum and I keep it in there with the lid on. 
Um, and if you're using Coke, though, when you buy it, it's going to have a lot of moisture in it. And you really need to dry it out. So you usually keep it on the table near the fire, but not close enough that it ignites. There's also a lot of impurities in coal. Like if you're buying anthracite or bituminized coal, that's why you have the pile of coal around the forge um, normally in coal fires is because in order for coal to be um, useful as a blacksmith, you needed to have it turned into coke. And mm. you coke coal by cooking it, much like you cook wood to become charcoal. And so what they would do is they'd pile the coal around it and let the outside stuff cook as the inside stuff was being used. And then they just rake in more as they like go. Like baking as a potato sl- in a campfire. Yeah, as it slowly cooks. So um, that's the main reason you see that. Um, but yeah, in a charcoal forge, which I'm guessing is probably what you're going to end up using for the most of what you're doing, given that it's Australia and finding friggin' metallurgical coal is a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not easy here you know, either. Yeah, um, you're you're better. Like at the end of the day, you're better off with any kind of flat surface. Like if you repurpose uh, the lid off an old forty-four gallon drum, actually, you know, because it's round, yeah. it'll make it make it a round thing. Uh, um, or you could use a square pot; doesn't really matter. Even, even find the biggest baking tray you can find, <laughs> like one of those really big turkey roasting trays. Um, get a steel one of those. The trick that you're going to run into is uh, the brake drum. Uh, the old brake drum trick works really great as a fire pot, um, but the trick with them is they're made of cast iron, and welding to it is very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, not for the faint-hearted, let's say. I won't say impossible, um, but not for the faint-hearted. So affixing your table to the top of that uh, is going to be a little tricky, but not impossible. Also, we're talking about Steve here. He's a resourceful guy. Um, He's he's like an OG off-gridder, so that's that's a man who knows how to, you know, he can do some figuring. Find that out. I mean, so, my, um, my forge pot is about the same size as a break drum, a little bit larger, but the table that it's in is like a meter wide by about a half meter deep. Uh, so, like, you can have as big of or as small as a table as you need. Yeah, um, mine's only about four inches uh, wider around the outside of my, than my fire pot is. So, because yeah. uh, I, I like to just have a, a central heap, but I, I only ever use charcoal, so I never need to bake anything. Um, and it gives me good access, uh, equal access from all four sides. So um, it, it depends on what you what you need. If you're going to be using coke, you're going to need to bake that potato. If you're going to be using coal, you're going to need to um, de uh, what dehumidify that potato. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you're using charcoal, you can do whatever the hell you want because it's it's the perfect solid fuel. If you ask me, <laughs> I've done I've done ranty videos about this. I love it. <laughs> It burns cleaner, at least, and, you know. I love the for, smell. Weight for weight, it is exactly the same amount of BTUs of heat. Yeah. The only difference is that weight for weight, or weight for weight, the volume is a it's lot very different. different. Yeah. But the good thing is, if you need to walk away for three hours and then come back, you just start cranking the blower and it'll light right back up. You know? Yeah. But, but Coke, you can't do that. Have you made your own uh, charcoal? I have on I a have. small scale, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, no, I've, I'd, I'd I've... like to do a big scale one, but I want to wait until I have my own property to actually set up a, a like a repeatably usable one. Yeah, we did that when we did the uh, the, the the big steel melt mm. that we did. Yeah, I want to. So, like the majority of the charcoal you can get here in Australia, in WA at least, is hardwood. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And if I want to do a proper steel bloomery smelt, I want to make pine charcoal because uh, mm. pine charcoal is lighter and therefore burns faster and hotter. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually is it it's provides a more carbon rich environment that's why uh tamahagane has such a high percentage of carbon is because they use pine charcoal in making tamahagane uh, interesting yeah interesting. it's one of the reasons why some forms of like some some nordic regions uh during the viking period had more steel than others is not only did they have taller stacks but they used uh, light ch- pine, types of light wood. pine wood charcoal rather than ash or oak or any totally other hardwoods. Be- higher density. Yeah, that it's totally just, makes you know, sense. Science. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, Marcus is frantically making notes. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I like, I lately I've been really intrigued by the, you know, like I'll get, there was that article that was like flying around the internet for a long time. I just, you know, you guys all get. Random, oh, are you talking you about know, the bone? The bone thing, yeah. The no, bone yeah. thing. Yeah, the yeah. bone thing. Yeah, I, I don't know how many times someone's sent that to me. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, I mean, I've done I've done that instinctively all the time. I mean, like, yeah, you make some... charcoal is a... Yeah, well, you make some canister Damascus and you just put some witchy shit in there, you know? Like, I mean, there's, yeah. like, like, if I'm doing some dragon scale Damascus or whatever, you know, like, I'll put some, you know, snake skin or... Uh, I know. I know that uh, Owen Bush carburized steel once using fingernails. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so, like, it, it it can be done. And I yeah. mean, um, the old school the old school method for case hardening was to encase um, the steel in bone. Yeah, bone dust. Yeah, mm. yeah, it makes so, perfect sense. Have you guys ever yeah. uh, forged mild steel to? Um, uh, well, just ground, you know, mild steel to a very, you know, like a fine edge, you know, like a really mm-hmm. fine edge, and then uh, um, uh, case hardened it. Tried to carburize it? No. no. No, I haven't done that either. Yeah, I, I've been doing that um, with just the mild steel herb choppers, um, just, you mm-hmm. know, because, I mean, it's a simple thing. They're, they're not, it doesn't, they're not going to put them through that much abuse. Um, no. But the, <laughs> my God. Like, it's seriously sharp. <laughs> like, yeah. like, when you case harden, you, you know, these mild steel pieces and you, you know, like, I mean, afterward, I think I've cut myself more accidentally with mild steel that it's been case hardened. Like, it's There's an it's amazing video from um, on YouTube from ClickSpring where he's recreating the Antikythera mechanism from scratch using period accurate tools and techniques that he is making for the build, That's which so is cool. an incredible... That is a sentence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the things that he did was to make files because mm. there was evidence on the Antikythera mechanism that they used files on it. Mm-hmm. And he made files using mild steel that he case hardened by mm-hmm. making a paste of charcoal dust, uh, wrapping it in that, and then putting that, uh, co- covering that in clay and then baking that in a mm-hmm. fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made exceptionally functional files using yeah. that. Yeah. Well, the, the, and the big thing is, is that it's basically just creating an incredibly low alloy, high carbon steel. Like that's, that's the big thing. Um, one of the reasons that Jap- Japanese like um, steel, white paper and blue paper steel is, is world famous for its edge holding capabilities is because it's incredibly low alloy, 
high carbon steel. And the, the, the fact that it's low alloy means that there's no carbide segregation. And the, when you have no carbide segregation, that means you don't have large carbides in your edge, hmm. which means that you lose a little bit of wear resistance, right? Because obviously mm-hmm. carbides are basically pure diamond. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have large chunks of material in your edge. So therefore there's no chances of that popping out. Right. And so that's why you get a much finer edge out of, that's why you get those planes, the hand planes that can plane like, you know, two microns. (laughs) Like you can read through it. Um, Tissue paper shavings. That's why they get such a fine edge. And so if you're carburizing mild steel, the majority of mild steel is just basically, you know, iron with a little bit of carbon in it like 1018 mm-hmm. um and then yeah you're just adding more carbon to that so you're not adding in more alloying content so you're ending up with a very pure kind of low cal- a low alloy high carbon steel I, so I, it makes I, sense that you would get a very fine edge i've personally been really uh get for years now i've been getting a lot out of just utilizing you know like uh mild steel with uh, case hardening to like produce like texturing tools and um just things on a fly like i'll need something you know like a tool and you yep. know that that is going to get a lot of wear and tear and i know that it's going to get a lot of wear and tear and i don't want to wanna... order like like the, the hardest you know tool steel <laughs> on the planet and have to deal with all the different procedures for for doing that when i can just make a quick tool that does the job and case i really want to buy some case in it but god it's expensive here in australia we have this like stuff cherry, cherry, cherry red. red and like case in it um yeah. is really expensive here in australia because we uh, have to order it from the states that sucks <laughs> um sorry yeah the, the i use cherry red all the time mm. and i love that stuff i mean and i think they even took the arsenic out of it <laughs> yeah. oh well you know it'll still cause cancer and kill you but you know like yeah <laughs> I turn what doesn't these days? I, right? I mean, pretty right. much everything. I mean, we're blacksmiths. We, yeah. we, long lifespans is not something that comes as part of the job. No, but you know, like I, I, I wear a mask and and uh, yeah. turn the fan on and you know make sure there's a lot of uh, open windows and doors and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, it'll be that. fine. Yeah, it should be right. <laughs> I breathe borax fumes on the daily. <laughs> yeah, you know, just line it up on the end. We'll just. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get some forging done. Do a line of borax. <laughs> yeah, it. I mean, God, what? Yeah, what doesn't kill you in this line of work? It's amazing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I I wish you guys could get a get a hold of that a lot easier because it's absolutely fantastic. It would be nice. Maybe one yeah. day. Yeah, I, I love it. I love that it. being Maybe said, a friendly person from America could send some over. That would be nice. I could hook you up. It's the <laughs> it's the uh, the shipping that kills you. Oh the yeah, that kills you, and yeah. not only that, but Always. Australia's got some of the strictest fucking yeah mail. Like oh, you yeah. guys are just brutal over there. Brutal. Oh, yeah. uh, we're we're also nonsensical because you know, like some things will let in as no problem, and then well, you guys are dealing with generations of cane toad trauma. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is true. <laughs> Cane toad. It's all right. We crickets. we made that work for us. Now you can buy cane toad wallets and oh yeah yeah purses. I have things. one. Yeah, I've got. I, one. I, I just just saw the other day that uh, we've now seen ibises, the bin chicken, uh, being able to kill cane toads. Yes. So all finally, right. finally, the most irritating bird in Australia is now providing some use. That's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. 
That's awesome. Oh, man. So we have um, a Forgecast, either a Forgecast challenge going or a Forgecast competition going at any given time. And we've actually been talking up a big game about how there is a Forgecast competition coming Mm. for the end of the year. And uh, we're recording this on the 1st of December. You guys are going to be listening to this on the 2nd. And so uh, it means that it's time for you to indulge in a Forgecast competition. So there will be prizes being given for this. Um, we will be announcing what those prizes are in coming episodes. Um, and the competition is an open category this time. We want to see the best thing, whatever the thing is, that you have made in your forge in the year of 2022. Don't care what it is. It could be a knife, could be a tool, could be a particularly nice set of tongs that you made. But we want to see what your best foot forward we want to see what it is. So there will be separate prizes for quality of work, for inventiveness of work, for character, that sort of thing, um, to be decided. We're still working out the details of what the categories will be, but we want everybody to be able to have a shot because we know that there's people of different levels out there. We want everyone to feel like they can have a go. So um, put your best foot forward. It could be something that you decide that you want to make in the month of December for specifically for this competition. But if you're strapped for time and you don't want to make something new, go back through the things that you've made in 2022 and show us your best. Each person is only allowed one thing to choose. So (laughs) choose wisely. And Sam and I will be uh, judging them harshly. No, not really. We'll just pick on what we like. (laughs) But wow us, people. Wow us. There will be prizes. So um, that being said, uh, if anybody has any other questions that they would like to email in from the community, you can slide into our DMs. We're on Facebook and Instagram, or you can email us those questions to ask.forgecast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and answer your questions. Um, Marcus, thanks so much for coming on the show. If people want to find you, find what you're about, see the stuff that you make, what are all the places that they can track you down? All the places. Um, I've got Instagram um, constantly, daily like posts. So that's daily, nightly, and ever so rightly. Yes. <laughs> so if you want to see the newest things constantly that are going on uh, with Troll Cunning Forge, Instagram is the place to see the most. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm on Twitter. I am on Facebook. I am uh, on Etsy. So my shop is on Etsy if you want to see, you know, like what is available. But you can't buy it all on Etsy. And (laughs) that's because Etsy takes a huge bite. And if I make something really nice, I don't want to share it on Etsy. (laughs) <laughs> mm. I, I feel you on that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I they take I, a big bite. Yeah, I they think it's a like big appetite. 40% of your sale yeah. goes to Etsy. So I prefer to sell my nicer things um, directly through Instagram. So you can always, if it doesn't say sold on the Instagram post, then you can just contact me. And Yeah. I, I slide I, into his DMs. Yeah, I have a, a treasure trove of magical wares just waiting you know, for, <laughs> for people. So that's what we like to hear. What about you, Sam? Where can people find you? You can find me at Samtown's Bladesmith on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Etsy, Patreon, Redbubble, 
uh, the kitchen sink. I might actually post again to, to TikTok eventually. Where can they find you, Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, Redbubble, Instagram, have I said that? YouTube. I'm even mm. on Mastodon now. Yeah, me too. I'm on, tic- <laughs> I'm on TikTok. Yeah, Mastodon, I'm a, they really need to update their app with all of the people going on there, but I'm sure it's coming. Um, but yeah, I'm on there. I'll have to track you down, Marcus. Yeah. Is just that- Troll Cunning Forge? Uh- God, no, I think it's Marcus McCoy, but uh, I've just been using it to post like I do on Twitter and things just like. But are you the real McCoy or are you? I am the real McCoy. (laughs) All those others are fake. They're just frauds, pure frauds. Damn it, Jim, I'm a blacksmith, not a medical man. That's that's right. You can call me Bones McCoy. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on to the show. It's been awesome talking to you. I have to get you on yeah. again to delve further into some of the uh, amazing historical yeah, facts I, that I, you know. Yeah, I'd love to talk about uh, all the uh, Australian uh, um, blacksmiths that came over from uh, the UK because they were members of mm. secret societies. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Focused around blacksmith comment. magic. So comment on this post and let us know how quickly you want us to bring Marcus back in to, to talk about this. Cause uh, I know I'm pretty keen. Well, given this is one of the longest episodes we've had in a number of months, I think we were, <laughs> we were on a yeah. good track. So yeah, much to talk sure. about. It's yeah. Awesome. yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm long winded. You can ask well, my wife. I mean, so are we. Well, yeah. so are we. Yeah. That's, it's like our brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People complain when our episodes are too short. They're like, I'm out of episodes and I've had to re-listen to them. Do more episodes. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying, people. (laughs) Anyway, it's been an absolute hoot and we'll see everybody next week. Keep those fires lit. Stay safe and show us your best work. Cheers, guys.